Great to be here worshiping with you and singing and looking at the word together. We're going to be jumping back into the story of Exodus, looking at Exodus chapter 11 today. But before we do that, I have a little game for us to play together, okay? Uh, This game is only going to involve from you some raising of hands. The game is called Goat, the Greatest of All Time. Now, if you're watching online, if you're out on the patio, please raise your hand for your favorite vote for greatest of all time. But here in the room, we'll, you know, we're gonna see what each other are doing and we're gonna, we're gonna play with that a little bit. So I've got a number of different categories. We'll start with a few sports and then we've got a few other categories. And I wanna hear from you who you think is the greatest of all time. So let's begin with basketball. We've got Michael Jordan or LeBron James. So let's see uh, Michael Jordan. That's, that's going to be tough to beat, okay? Uh, LeBron James, a few LeBron fans, okay. Not, not too many LeBron fans, sorry, LeBron. Okay, uh, football, Tom Brady or Jerry Rice? Tom Brady? Okay, Jerry Rice? Okay, okay, maybe a generational gap on that one I'm sensing, I'm not sure, okay. Uh, how about tennis? This one's a little more near and dear to my heart. Uh, tennis, so we've got Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic. All right, Federer and Djokovic. Okay, all right. Uh, by the way, I, I, just as a caveat, I know many of you are like, neither of them are the greatest. Like, you feel free to email me later, okay, to submit your other requests, okay? We can have runners up, that's just fine. All right, so let's, let's move out of sports a little bit and think about some other categories. So let's think about the greatest car maker of all time. We've got Henry Ford or Elon Musk, okay? Henry Ford, Elon Musk. Oh, poor Elon, so sad, okay. Um, let's go with the best actress. So we've got Meryl Streep or Audrey Hepburn. Mmm, tough one, tough one. Okay, Meryl Streep, Audrey Hepburn. Okay, pretty even, pretty even. And uh, let's think about musical artists now. This might be a little bit contentious, but best musical artist of all time. We've got T-Swift and Michael Jackson, all right? Taylor Swift, a few fans, Michael Jackson. Okay, that's what I thought, that's what I thought, all right. Okay, one last category for us here. Best PBC pastor of all time. Okay, just kidding. We're not going to go there. You can, don't even email me about that one, okay? I don't know. Okay, we're not going to go there. (laughs) Ray Stedman got a vote. We didn't even vote, but he got a vote. Well, you know, sometimes I, I wonder what it would be like to be the greatest of all time at something, right? That's something that not many of us will ever get to experience, to be the best in your field, right? Not, not just today, but of all time. What would that be like? I grew up watching Roger Federer play tennis and, and just thinking, I mean, what would it be like to be the best in the world at what I do? Or watching Tiger Woods play golf and just think, what, what would it be like to be on the top? You know, there's, there's a lot of people who, who, who dedicate their lives to becoming the greatest of all time in something. 
And there's different things that motivate these people, right? Maybe it's the fame, maybe it's the prestige, the notoriety, maybe it's an internal motivation, but there's something that's driving all of these people to succeed in the way that they do. Now there's other people who, who maybe someone comes to mind as we think about this, but somebody who thinks that they're the greatest of all time, who is clearly not, okay? We say that this person has a God complex, right? That is, they, they have this notion that no matter what the facts say, that they actually are the best of all time, right? And, and, and that person and people like them, people who, who, who think that they're the best or people maybe who actually are the best, they're driven in large part by a similar kind of desire, a similar kind of search. And, and that is the search for glory, right? To, to the, the search for glory, that, that you're, you're after this desire to, to be noticed by others, to be recognized by your accomplishment, just to be able to stand up on that podium and say, there's nobody better than me. Now, a lot of, a lot of us, most of us probably aren't going to experience that. Right? We're not gonna be the greatest of all time at anything that we do. And yet inside of us, we also have that same quest for glory. There's something in us that wants to be noticed, wants to be appreciated, wants to be recognized, honored, wants to be better than. There's something in all of us that's seeking for glory. This morning, as we jump into Exodus 11, we're gonna meet a man who is obsessed with his own glory. We've met him already. His name is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he's, he's obsessed with his own glory. In, in the Egyptian pantheon, Pharaoh was viewed as a deity. And Pharaoh demanded all of the worship of somebody who was a god. He, he, he was obsessed with being praised and worshiped and receiving glory. We looked last week at the first nine plagues. And we saw that what, what God is doing in those plagues, in large part, is he's showing that he is actually greater than Pharaoh. He's greater than Egypt. He's greater than the Egyptian uh, magicians. He's greater than the Egyptian gods. He's greater than nature. Pharaoh is not as great as God. God's exerting his greatness over Pharaoh in all of those plagues. And this morning in chapter 11, we're gonna see God threaten to bring one last plague against Egypt. And what God is doing here, what we're gonna see God do is he, he is working to humble Pharaoh and to prove that God is in fact the greatest, that God is the one who deserves all the glory. So let's begin uh, by looking at the first three verses of Exodus chapter 11. We pick up right where chapter 10 left off. We're in the middle of a conversation between Pharaoh and Moses. The ninth plague has just happened. Pharaoh's hardened his heart. He's not gonna let the people go. And now in the middle of this conversation, we get the beginning of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. 
So what we have here in, in the middle of this conversation between Moses and Pharaoh, we actually have the narrator reminding us of some things that God has said in the past. The beginning where it says that God said to Moses, that could also be translated and would probably better be translated here, God had said. It's, it's looking back to some things that God has already made known. In chapter four, we saw God tell Moses that he was going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn if Pharaoh did not let the people go. He's already said, this is what's gonna happen. And then he said, and Pharaoh's not gonna let the people go. So God's already said, this is what's gonna happen. He already told the people that when you go out from Egypt, which you will, when you go out from Egypt, you will go with the riches of Egypt, right? The Egyptians are just gonna give you their silver and gold on the way out. So Egypt is in this situation, or Israel's in this situation. We've had nine plagues. We've had, had God doing all of these things and still Pharaoh is not letting the people go. And the narrator just wants to remind us, you know what? God said this was gonna happen. And even though this situation looks bleak, even though there's no clear path forward, God wants you to know that he is still working. That's a reminder that we need so often, isn't it? That, that we look out at, at our life, at our circumstances, and maybe we're in the midst of a, of a dark chapter. Maybe it's been a painful chapter, a difficult chapter. Maybe it's been difficult to see how God is working. We just need to be reminded in those situations that God is still working. And in fact, God is writing a story. And though this chapter may be difficult, we know that this story has a good ending. I have a friend who about 18 months ago lost her husband in the middle of a night to a severe cardiac event. And with his passing, he left behind his wife and two young kids, two and five years old at the time. And I was talking with her recently and uh, she was just sharing, you know, kind of 18 months out how she was processing things. And she's done a, a lot of processing of her own grief over those last 18 months. But the thing kind of where, where she was at on this day is she was looking at her, her now six-year-old son. And she was lamenting the fact that as an adult, she had some tools to grieve. Right? She knew how to grieve. There was a process that she could go through and she'd been in that process. But here's her six-year-old son and, and he doesn't know how to grieve, right? He doesn't know how to mourn the loss of his father. And it was just spilling out in all kinds of unhealthy behavioral problems in his life. And she wasn't upset with those problems, but she was upset with the fact that he wasn't capable of grieving the loss of his father. And she said, I, I just don't see how this chapter ha has a good ending. Like it, it, he's just not able to do the work that he needs to do to get to a, a place of health and healing and wholeness. And she was sharing this, and as we were praying about this, it felt like the Lord had an invitation for her that day. And that invitation was, you know what, even though this chapter is dark, can you trust me with the whole story? This is a, a dark and painful chapter, and this chapter might have a dark and painful ending but this chapter is not the last chapter of the story. God is still working. God is still working out his story of redemption, his work of making all things new, his work of healing all that is broken. And even though this current chapter is painful, we know that the story has a good ending. So maybe this morning you find yourself in the midst of a dark chapter. And you know what, if it's not this chapter of your life, it's going to be another chapter. 
We all have these seasons, these chapters that are difficult, and some of them, they've got dark and painful endings to them. But that chapter, or this chapter, is not the last chapter. God is is writing a bigger story, and he's saying, will you trust me with the whole story? Will you recognize that I am, in fact, working even when you can't see it, even behind the scenes? And I, I know where things are going. Can you trust me with that story? For Pharaoh, he did not want to be a part of the story of God. God was doing something. And by this point in the story, Pharaoh is the only person standing in the way of God fulfilling his promises. That the Egyptian people at this point, they're like, we, God, we just want you to leave, right? These, these nine plagues, they've been horrible. Would you just get out? Would you go with your people? They're ready to send the people of Israel out. The, the Hebrew people who first didn't trust Moses are now ready to follow Moses. And the, they're ready to go with him out of Egypt. The only person at this point in the story who is standing in opposition to God is Pharaoh. Why? Why has Pharaoh not let the people go? Why is he still resisting the plan of God? It's because he is so obsessed with his own glory. He is just so full of himself. And and, and as the narrator describes this dynamic to us, he describes it in a few different ways. In some places it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that God was involved in this. In other, other places it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Right? This, is, this is something that Pharaoh is doing. And sometimes it's described a little bit more neutrally that just Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Scott talked about this a little bit last week in his sermon and reminded us that in, in all of this, it seems what God is doing is, is just letting Pharaoh be his authentic self. He's saying, if this is who you are, then this is who you can be. And Pharaoh was so obsessed with his own glory that he could not stand the possibility of letting the people of God go from under his control and under his rule. His heart was hard towards God. And at least for now, God was letting him operate in that way. But God wasn't going to tolerate this forever. And so we continue reading in Exodus 11, starting in verse four. We kind of jump from this flashback to what God has said back into that room with Moses and Pharaoh. And Moses replies to Pharaoh. Here's what he says. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill and and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you shall know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God says, a time is coming. Something is going to happen. I I have not forgotten my people. I have not given up on them. I have one more thing that I'm going to do. And this 10th plague that God says is coming is the most destructive of all of the plagues, affecting Pharaoh with the death of his firstborn, all the way down to the lowest servant in the land and her firstborn, and even the cattle aren't spared. Death just works its way through the whole land of Egypt. 
You know, if we just jumped in the story at this point, we, we might find ourselves asking like, God, how could you do that? Right? How, how, could you, how could you jump in and cause so much death and destruction? I mean, isn't that, isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust? But when we read the whole story, we see that, that God is not acting unjustly. God is actually bringing justice. God is bringing against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians the same thing that they have already brought against his people. Back in chapter one, we saw Pharaoh ordering his people to go out among the Hebrews and to find all of the baby boys and kill them. And as far as we know, the Egyptians were happy to go along with this plan. And now God says, now I am going to take your firstborn from you. God was acting in justice against Pharaoh and against the Egyptian people. But, but more than just acting with justice, God is also acting here with mercy and compassion because it is this 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, that is going to lead to the freedom of his people. Remember, the people of God called out and God remembered his covenant and he said, I am going to bring you to freedom and a place of deliverance. And now this is what it's gonna take. This is what it's gonna take for Pharaoh to change his mind and to let the people go. And so this act of destruction and justice is also an act of mercy and compassion. But there's more than that going on here also. The bigger thing that God is doing in all of this is he is working to bring glory to himself. He is working to show the world that he is the one with the power and not Pharaoh that he is the greatest of all time and not Pharaoh. He wants to make that known in this plague and that's exactly what he's going to do. That the language of glory, it's gonna show up in the next couple chapters. We're gonna see as this plague is actually played out, God says several different times that he is winning glory over Pharaoh. And, and Paul picks up on the same idea in uh, the book of Romans as he kind of looks back to these events. Romans chapter nine uh, Paul sort of asks this question like, is God unjust, right? If he acts in certain ways, does that make God unjust? And he brings that back to this story in Egypt. So Exodus, uh, um, Romans 9, starting in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a statement that God's gonna make to Moses later in Exodus 33. Verse 16. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. That's something that God said in chapter nine, just a couple chapters ago. Pharaoh, I'm raising you up. I'm allowing you to become great so that I can show the world how much greater I am than you. And Paul picks up, he continues with this line of thinking down in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So God is saying, you know, I'm gonna have mercy 
on whom I have mercy, I'm gonna have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh is so full of himself. He has hardened his heart against me. I'm gonna cooperate with that hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And I'm gonna use that as an opportunity to show not just to him, not just to my people, but to the whole world, how much greater I am than Pharaoh. God is working all of this, enduring so much disobedience from Pharaoh so that he might be glorified. You know, when God looked at the land of Egypt and he saw the way that his people were being treated, his heart was broken. When, when he looked into the very heart of Pharaoh and, and, and saw the evilness and, and the wickedness and the hardness of heart that was there, God's heart was broken over that. And yet in the midst of all of that, he said, I am going to use these circumstances to bring glory to myself. I wonder if you've ever had a situation where you've prayed a prayer for a long time, maybe for years, and that prayer has gone unanswered. I know I've been in this situation before. I can think of a number of times that come to mind. One was uh, when my Aunt Sherry was diagnosed with MS. She was a young adult. I was a kid at the time, elementary school. And for years and years and years, my family would pray for my aunt, that she might be healed, that God might preserve her life, prolong her life. But eventually this disease took her life. She wasn't even 50 years old. And we had prayed for years, God, what? please, like, why would you not want to heal her? Like, it made, it made no sense. You know, why, why would you not want to step in and bring healing? And maybe you've prayed prayers like this, prayers for physical healing, prayers for relational healing, emotional healing, prayers about a situation of pain or injustice or grief. And God, it just seems so obvious. Why, why don't you just come in and, and fix this situation? Sometimes he doesn't do that. And we're left wondering, God, Why? God, why didn't you step in? God, why didn't you act? Now, there's over 500 people that came to my aunt's memorial service. The church was full. Each and every one of those people had been touched by her life. Each and every one of those people at that service heard the, a story of a woman who despite a life of hardship was just sold out for the Lord. Each and every one of those people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ declared. And afterwards, my grandpa, he would frequently look back at, at that service and, 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 and at my aunt's passing and say, you know, I don't, I don't know why God chose to take her from us so early. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. But then I think about that service and I think about each of those people. And, and the Lord gave my grandpa a word and he said, you know what? If just one person who was at that service or if just one person who was a part of her life came to know my love because of her, wouldn't that be enough? It would, right? It, it, it didn't look on the surface like it made any sense. It, it's hard to tell what God is doing, but even if one person came to know the love of God through her life, wouldn't that be worth it? Sometimes it's easy to step into a situation or to find ourselves in a situation and, and feel like we know what would be best. We know what would make most sense. We know what the best kind of resolution is. But the truth is that, that God is in the midst of all of that. And he is working all of those situations for his glory and for our good, if we love him. That's his promise for us. 
He says, I know, I know it might not look like I'm there. I know it might not look like I'm working. I know those heartfelt prayers that have been left unanswered might make you question whether I'm even there. He says, I'm there. I'm there and I'm working. I'm working things for my glory so that you might know how great I am and so that you might be able to give your life to worshiping me. God is always at work and he is always working things for his glory. But Pharaoh, he couldn't stand that, right? Pharaoh couldn't stand giving up his position of power, his position of glory. But that's not gonna stop God. Going back to Exodus 11, God wants to say one more thing to Pharaoh here. He says it in verse eight. And all these, your servants, that's the servants of, of Pharaoh, the servants of Egypt, shall come down to me and shall bow down to me saying, get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And there the conversation between Pharaoh and Moses ends. Pharaoh says, you know what? The day is coming after God brings this plague where the people of Egypt are just gonna bow down before God but they're not gonna bow in worship. They're gonna bow in desperation. <laughs> they're gonna say, enough is enough. We can't take any more. Would you just get out of here? Would you just leave us alone? And that's exactly what God is gonna do. This picture that we have, it's a powerful picture, a striking image of the people of Egypt just bowing down before God saying, we want no part of you. Would you please leave us alone? But Paul again picks up on this same idea. In the book of Philippians, he, he writes of the, the trajectory of the life of Jesus, how he left heaven, he came to earth as a man, he lived the life of a servant, he died the death of a criminal. And then it says that God is going to raise him up and give him a name that is above every name. And then it tells us why God is gonna do that. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? To the glory of God the Father. Each and every one of us one day will bow down before God. But that is gonna be a very different experience for some of us. For some of us, that is gonna be the best moment of our lives where we get to worship God in all of his glory. For other people, that's gonna feel like the worst day ever because there's an acknowledgement in that situation that when we are faced with the glory of God in the person of Jesus, when he comes back, that that will be such a powerful event that God will come in and he will, over, he will overwhelm our minds so that each of us comes to understand what in fact is true, which is that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every person, every person alive now, every person who has lived, every person who will be born, every knee will bow and will assent to that truth. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. But even though God will come and will overwhelm our minds with his glory, he will not overpower our wills. He will not come in and make us choose him if we don't want to. That we have the opportunity, like the people of Egypt, to bow down and say, God, please get away from me. 
I want nothing to do with you. This is why C.S. Lewis penned that famous phrase that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. He says, God's not just gonna come in and force you to do something you don't wanna do. If you want life on your terms, if you want life your way, if you don't want God to be a part of that, he's gonna say, okay, if that's what you want, then that's what you can have. But I have something so much better for you. I have a life that's full of love and grace and peace and forgiveness, a life of abundance. But if you don't want that, if you wanna do things your way, if you want to sit on the throne of your life instead of allowing me to sit there, then you can have that. I'm not gonna overwhelm your will. I'm not gonna overpower your will. Each and every one of us will bow down a knee to Jesus one day. The question is, will we be bowing down in worship or will we be bowing down in desperation? For many in Egypt, not all, for many in Egypt, they bowed down with desperation. God, get away from me. The invitation for us is now, here, even today, to bow down, to humble ourselves in a way that Pharaoh was never willing to do. Say, God, I don't wanna live life on my terms. God, I don't wanna do life my way. I wanna do life your way. I wanna receive what you have to give instead of trying to just do things on my own. To place our faith in Jesus, to receive his love and to say, God, I want to be about bringing you glory. That's the opportunity that we have today. That's the invitation that we have today to humble ourselves before Jesus, to say, thank you for giving up your life for me. I want to be with you. I want to receive from you and do things your way. For Pharaoh, he never got to that point. Even though he's gonna let the people go, we see that Pharaoh never really comes around. He never becomes a worshiper of God. And we have a reminder of that in the last couple of verses of Exodus 11, verses nine and 10. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It's not gonna work. Pharaoh, he's not gonna soften his heart. So Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. A tragic ending to this chapter. Pharaoh saying, I am not willing to give up the quest for my own glory in exchange for the life of love and peace and forgiveness that God wants to give me. I don't want any part of it. And so the chapter closes there. And it leaves us with a question. What are we gonna do? Are we, like Pharaoh, gonna resist the work of God? Are we going to keep ourselves on the throne of our lives at the center of our universe? Or are we gonna say, God, I want to follow you. Pharaoh was obsessed with his own glory. There's something in all of us that is seeking after our own glory. But God says, I'm inviting you into a life of abundance where you get to be a part of what I'm doing and you get to give me glory, the most fulfilling thing that we could ever do. But how do we do that? Right? What, do, what, does it, what does it look like to give God glory? Part of it is what we do here as we gather for corporate worship. We get to sing and, and declare truths about God and express our love and devotion to him. And that is an act of bringing God glory. 
But bringing glory to God extends far beyond what we do just when we gather here on Sunday mornings. Right? This is a whole life thing. And this is what we read in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's this reminder that as we go about our lives, as we go about our work, we can be full of ourselves or we can be full of the spirit. As we go about our relationships, we can be full of ourselves or we can be full of the spirit. That as we go about our hobbies, as we go about our cooking, as we go through our pain, as we experience our joy, we can be full of ourselves or we can be full of the spirit. So the invitation for us today, my question for you today is, are you hungry for the glory of God? Is there something inside of you that desires to bring God glory that says, I want my whole life, not just my Sunday morning, but my whole life to be about bringing God glory. Are you hungry for the glory of God? This is the reason why we were created to bring God glory. This is when life works the best, when we humble ourselves before God and bring him glory. Are you hungry for God's glory? Lord, I pray that this morning you would fill us with a hunger for your glory, to see your name lifted high, to see you declared as the one who is great, as the one who is powerful, as the one who is full of love and compassion and grace. God, we want our lives to be about you. And yet there is something in us that just keeps seeking after our own glory. And so Lord, here in this place, we just want to to, to lay our lives before you, to open our hearts before you, to say, would you come in God? Would you find all of those parts of us that are seeking after our own glory? And would you turn them? Lord, by your grace, would you give us a vision of your glory that might compel us to become more and more worshipers of you? Lord, we need you for this. We can't do it on our own. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us today and help us bring glory to you. I wanna invite you to stand this morning. We're gonna turn back into a time of worship, of singing God's praise. And as we do, we're gonna sing a couple things that are true of God, that he, he is our light, He is our salvation, that he is the everlasting God. And as we do, let this be an expression of our faith and hope in Him. Let's worship God and bring Him glory together. We'll trust you, we'll wait on you. You would get glory. Get glory out of our lives, God. The song says, 